family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> The Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Ronathy, your host, looking forward to two hours of conversational improvisation, some cool jazz music, some information on some people doing some good green energy work that you might find interesting and useful because they're here in the Hudson Valley. And we'll open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox, which will be a little bit interesting, we promise you. Uh, Joining me, our co-host, Ron Van Warmer. You know him because he plays great music for us all here on the weekends at Radio Woodstock. Um, The distinction between madness and genius can often be quite slim. A fascinating example is a gentleman named Noel Cobb who pulled himself out of the madness whirlpool and became a very successful psychotherapist. He wrote a very interesting book which dropped off a shelf in my apartment. So I guess it was meant to be looked at. And uh, we'll take a look at the darkness and how it really helps us to find the light. Um, We'll catch up. With our website, the Right Brain Network, Louis Benson of Window Cover 20 will be our phone guest talking about some green energy options now available in our window treatments. It's interesting. Windows are the gateway to the soul. We'll find out how to make them green. Plus jazz from the Sultan of the Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, who's coming in live. You always leave room for surprises because they will find us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pot bay doors, Hal. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. Are we living in the desert? I think maybe we are. I say that because we always think of the desert as hot, but one of the distinctions of a desert is the amazing differential in temperature between hot and cold, night and day. Yeah. Yesterday, and I I always do it with a little bit of trepidation because you don't want to anger the weather gods. (laughs) But I actually, for about five minutes, turned on the air conditioning in my car. Wow. Yeah, the first day of spring. And yet, this morning was what? When you called me to wake me up this morning? 28 degrees. Come on. What is this? The high I desert? I know. It's uh, 29 now, so it's, <laughs> it's balmy almost. It's bracing. <laughs> and yes. it's going to probably be 60 degrees later today. Well, it's interesting because we did make it through the, the heart of winter, the darkness of winter. Today, the first day of spring. So why not talk about the darkness? Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not a favorite subject of American culture. American culture, which certainly has its benefits, is primarily focused on the light. Yeah. The most famous being, and you know, as much as I dislike his politics, you have to admire and respect his communication skills, Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. who everything was light and shining cities on the horizon you know while they were stealing all the yeah. money from the middle class but at any rate um 
for the darkness, we have to count on the artists who understand yeah. probably better than anyone uh, the inevitability and importance of the darkness. And we're going to get into because it talking about the darkness shouldn't be depressing. It should actually be enlightening because we're born out of the darkness. Somewhat, what do they call it? Let me look it up here. Hey, Google. <laughs> what percentage of the universe is dark? 27%. According to CERN, dark matter seems to outweigh visible matter roughly 6 to 1, making up about 27% of the universe. Well, wait a minute. How can it be 27% if, it out, <laughs> if it's much more than the light? At any rate, most of who we are and what we come out of is darkness. We run away from it like as fast as we can. And we do that to our detriment because as the depth psychologists have taught us, um, if we're willing to learn the lesson, when we face the darkness, it gets transformed into something, whatever you want to call it, soul, mm. enlightenment. And our literature, our myths, and even our science is filled with that. Uh, one of two scenes that still just stick to my memory because most of what I learned in school, I blessedly have forgotten. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, However, I can remember as if yesterday, um, with trepidation, attending my first humanities class, Hmm. having gotten into Columbia, because I won a tennis tournament, uh, <laughs> not because of my grades or my board scores. It's a little intimidated. Fortunately, well, in my four years there, I had three great teachers. Hmm. And I realize now that's not bad odds. I guess not. You'd like it to be like half and half yeah. or at least half be excellent, right? Yeah. I found most of them pretty boring. But. And just stuck on stuff that didn't interest me. Um, But the three that were great, one of them was my freshman humanities teacher. And the first two books we had to read, of which I understood nothing, were the (laughs) Iliad and the Odyssey. Humanities. That's that's kind of a, a broad term isn't it well it's also one that our culture doesn't really embrace either mm. right because it's not practical enough yeah what the humanities what are you going to get a job in a philosophy <laughs> store yeah open a little philosophy shop yeah well that's what this is <laughs> <laughs> anyway so uh and what and what we the scenes i remember in the iliad which is an epic about a war mm-hmm so the first way we look at it is the way we're taught to look at it, the same way we look at Westerns, one of the great American myths, which is, oh, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and let's root for the good guys to win. Right. And uh, what happens at the end of the Iliad is the Greeks win the war. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for those who haven't read it, sorry about that. The Greeks win, but they don't because their greatest warrior, Achilles, at the end of the epic, is weeping Mm. as he looks out over the battlefield at all the blood and dead bodies of not only, he's weeping 
not only for his dead comrades, but for the enemy. Which is the appropriate response. Yes, but one doesn't expect that from the greatest testosterone-laden warrior. So that was that was an eye opener, mm. which is a good pun. Um, and then the sequel, The Odyssey. If Achilles was the most powerful physical warrior, Odysseus was the greatest integration of physical warrior and intelligence. And the Odyssey is now he's got to go home. The war's over. Well. Not so easy to get home. Mm. Here's a metaphor for you. And among <laughs> the many things that happen, um, and again, my humanities teacher, Leo Brody, uh, focused on it, was, because um, the fun stuff is the way he defeats the Cyclops, and then he, he, spends, he spends time on Circe's. Circe's the sorceress. Sexy, dangerous sorceress. Mm-hmm. Be still my heart. <laughs> uh, who um, he ends up sleeping with. Um, she turns his men into swine. Mm. And he has to kind of woo her to turn them back into humans. But she then informs him that if he's going to get home, he has to visit Hades, which is hell. Uh-huh. As if war, the war wasn't hellish enough. And now we get into a little bit into interpretation. I mean, but from a depth psychological view, we all have to face the darkness if we're going to truly find home. And Odysseus goes into Hades, and even Odysseus, who's this great warrior, um, is a little freaked out. Mm-hmm. It's a little. It's a little. But it turns out that the reason he had to go down there again was to. That's how enlightenment happens. It's not from the light. It's actually from going through the darkness. And if we look at the hero's journey, thank you, Joseph Campbell, throughout human uh, literature, um, the hero and the heroine always have to go through darkness. Mm, Yeah. That's the trip. But we were not taught it that way, uh, unless we had Leo Brody as a humanities teacher or someone as, you know, some, some, the few that are really good like that. Uh, we're, we just can't wait for the hero and the heroine to win and be happily, live happily ever after. It's the descent into the darkness that is the key to, to, their, to the voyage. And what happens to Odysseus down there is, first he has to grieve because he meets a lot of his dead comrades there. Yeah. And he realizes, just as Achilles does, that there, no one wins a war. Right. We still haven't learned that lesson. Yeah. Um, nobody wins a war. And um, uh, so that, but then he, Cersei said, you have to, you have to go to Hades to meet with the blind uh, uh, soothsayer, the seer, the prophet, uh, Tiresias, the blind prophet. And he you know, you can look at it literally as, okay, it's kind of like a GPS system to get home. He's got to go <laughs> through this. But it's it's really about th- that until we face the darkness, we can't really find home. And that was really the point of 
Carl Jung, considered the most influential psychologist of the 20th century. And why does this all come up now? This may be too broad a, yeah. uh, a topic to go into, but where did the Greeks get their concept of hell and Hades? We know where the Christians, you know, sort of, did they, did Christians usurp that view of Hades and hell that the Greeks had? The, the book that I started rereading and stopped and should continue is, is um, uh, it's, uh, I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> it's about the axial age. What, what's amazing, I mean, your, your question is, is a complex one. Mm. But what I do remember is that <clears throat> somehow, because I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, back in the 8th, 9th, 10th century B.C., they didn't have smartphones and the Internet. Ah. They didn't even have fax machines. Wow. And yet, continents thousands of miles away from each other, all at almost at the same time, came up with the golden rule. Mm. I mean, heaven and hell goes back even before biblical times, back to the Babylonians. Um, but what... What the great depth psychologists show is that these myths and these stories, including the Bibles, are metaphors for the human psyche, for our trip through this life. Uh, first, what separates us humans from other mammals primarily is our awareness that we're going to die. Right. And, and Dr. Freud had that one right. And so we needed to create stories to, to explain that journey. To help uh, guide us, a, GP, a GPS system, if you will, mm. through the, the fact that, now, that now we get into opinion, that, you know, look at the yin-yang symbol. I wrote about that in, uh, on our rightbrain.org website that Ron helps me with. New essay every week. The next essay won't be up until tomorrow because it turned out twice as long. Ah. About the, um, <laughs> we'll get to that in a second, but... Two weeks ago, I wrote about yin-yang, and it's up there on the website. My favorite symbol of all time. And think about that symbol. This is how I'm going to answer your question about heaven and hell. Because the yin-yang symbol was part of that axial age uh, between mm, like 3rd and 6th century B.C. When in the Middle East, you had the writers of the Old Testament doing their thing. You had the Greeks doing their thing. Um, and you had the Asians, you had Confucius, you had Lao Tzu, the Tao Ching, um, and you had the Buddha in India. Um, they weren't talking on the phone. Right. But they were all in their own way arriving at similar understandings of, of the human mind, which has to take into account the light and the darkness together. Mm -hmm. And the yin-yang symbol, to me, puts it all together because in that one symbol... You have half light, half dark, but they're not separated by a straight line. They're separated by a uh, by, a curvy by line, a, yeah, <laughs> a swerve, right? And that's because, in Alan Watts's term, which I use in the essay, the the dark and the light are folding and enfolding in and out of each other. That's the sense you get from the yin-yang symbol. Not that they're separate, because mm. they're not. And to kind of 
put an empirical exclamation point on it, that it's not just a abstract interpretation. If you look at the yin-yang symbol, this is the brilliance of it. In the dark half, there's a small white circle. And in the white half, there's a small dark circle. Mm -hmm. Again, using Alan Watts's great term, the enfolding and folding in and out of each other. So you can't separate them. We try to with Hallmark cards mm -hmm. and Disney films. Well, Disney, Disney's, to their credit, puts out stuff with some darkness in it. Um, but basically, when we were going to be baby boomers, the world of Disney was basically a homogenized whitewashing of all the darkness. <laughs> Even though Walt Disney himself was about as dark as you could get, turning people into the House on Un-American yeah. activities, uh, busting up unions, uh, nasty guy. Mm. But um, <laughs> uh, I digress. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can't get home without going through the darkness, but we run away from it. And I learned that when I started doing dream work, because dream work is one of the best ways, not the only way, one of the best ways of diving into the darkness to find the light through dealing with dreams. But and now we're going to get to Noah Cobb, whose book fell right. off my bookshelf. <laughs> because he's what's called an archetypal psychologist. Something created by... Uh, uh, um, uh, that, that was post-Jungian, where he... Basically, the archetypal psychologist says, rather than over-interpret your dream, we're going to just live in it. And here's the big difference. There's nothing wrong with interpreting a dream. I spent 10 years doing that, uh, 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 being taught by Jeremy Taylor, who was a guest on the show many times, and it's wonderful work. Mm -hmm. The point being made by the archetypal psychologist is the problem with interpreting a dream is you're taking this rich, provocative, deep material and you're kind of anesthetizing it a little bit by interpreting it. You're trying to make it nice by mm. saying, well, this is how I'm going to understand it. And there's something to that. Um, I learned a lot from interpreting my dreams, other dreams, leading dream groups. It's wonderful work. At the same time, <clears throat> and most of my dream colleagues just didn't want to go there, to really get the most out of a dream, particularly a nightmare, is not to try to interpret it, but to replay it and live in it and feel it. Because when we do this, yes, it's uncomfortable at first and can be scary at first, but eventually what is, becomes clear is somehow it gets transformed through the agreement to deal with it on its own terms. Instead of trying to interpret it and come up with a nice, satisfying, clean, clear meaning. It's not what they're about. Um, Odysseus, one of the greatest warriors of all time, was freaked out by his visit to Hades because that's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to shake us up to get to a deeper, higher place. And we don't get there one step at a time. Uh, you get there by... It's sort of like the analogy of you know, learning to swim by being thrown into the deep end of the mm. pool. And there, at first, you think you're drowning. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of the time, you're 
<clears throat> whatever you want to call it, your unconscious ability to deal with the world comes up and you, you start learning how to swim. Not by being taught it on a straight line, mm -hmm. but by being forced <laughs> to do it. Do or die. We've all had that experience. Uh, so, Noel Cobb, this book falls, and I don't have that many books left. Why? Because I don't want that many books anymore. I, I used to collect books. I loved, when I lived in the city in the 70s in the village, going to those Fourth Avenue bookstores. Mm. Those of you that know those are all smiling right now. These huge caverns. Yeah. Underground, you'd go down in the basement to these huge cavernous spaces with thousands and thousands of books and just browse and pick one out and loved it. And I had all these books, and I kept moving, and it was a pain in the neck. <laughs> when, when we moved, we we divested ourselves of about 5,000 books. Wow. Yeah. That's, we had books everywhere, bookcases built. And we loved living, living amidst our books. Mm. But we're in the digital age now. That was great then. Now, I, over the last 20 years, between yard sales 20 years ago and just giving them away to libraries. Yeah. Blessedly, I might have 30 books left uh -huh. that I really want. And this one fell off the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Very convenient. Archetypal Imagination. And I had forgotten about the book. I didn't remember much. The subtitle's interesting. Glimpses of the Gods in Life and Art. Mm. And Noah Cobb is an interesting dude. So here's, I, I read his biography on the back and I'm going, what a cool biography. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know that everyone's going to agree. Is he, is he alive or is he dead? I don't know. But born in 1938. He could still be alive. He could be alive. I hope so. <clears throat> Listen to this story. Born in 1938 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Noel Cobb chose self-imposed exile from his country at the age of 21 in 1959 in revulsion against the American way of life I'll tell you why I'm laughing in a second. Because um, <clears throat> I was watching Three Stooges cartoons at that time. He was yeah. self-exiling himself. Um, in revulsion against the American way of life, Cobb embarked on a steamer sailing from New York to Oslo. Now, let me stop with 1959. Such an interesting year. This is when the beat started becoming into our consciousness, the mm. beat generation, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac. And they were the progenitors of the 60s, hippie, drug, sex, rock and roll, anti-war, pro-feminism, pro-civil rights, 60s. These were people who, they rather than do what Noel Cobb did, was which, which was self, they were as fed up as Noel Cobb was with American culture. What was American culture? It was the Eisenhower years. It was the House and Un-American activities. Mm -hmm. It was the Cold War where we were told to sit, we, we, had, we had nuclear war drills mm -hmm. where they tell you to get under a desk in case of a <laughs> nuclear attack. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, they could have at least given us a crash helmet. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> a catcher's mask, something other than just, you know, under the desk. <laughs> um, what a decade, right? Yeah. Uh, Disney, you know, the wonderful world of Disney, Hallmark greeting cards, uh, and convenience, frozen foods, Fast canned foods. foods, Chef, I grew up, Chef Boyardee, ravioli in a can, uh -huh. Swanson frozen TV, TV dinners. dinners. Yeah. 
to me, there was no higher gourmet level of food than a, <laughs> a Swanson frozen they, TV they, dinner. They even made TV trays so yes. you could eat your TV dinner in front Out of, of your the TV. aluminum tray in front of the TV. Exactly. Loved it. Yeah. That was 1950s, right? So in 59, a lot of people were getting fed up with American culture, including the Beats. And what they did, they didn't exile themselves. They got, they went on the road. They got in their cars and they just started driving and writing poetry and interesting uh, paradigm shifting poetry made most famous by, uh, we were fortunate to have him as a guest twice uh, with, with um, <clears throat> boy, I'm having a lot of senior moments here. Um, Howell, Allen Ginsberg's Howell, when he, the reading of Howell sort of lit the fire mm. in the late 50s, early 60s. That became what we know as the Woodstock generation. Uh, the Beats really were the progenitors of it. And they were a small group, but what an influence they had. Um, and boy, the culture didn't like them. Mm. <clears throat> uh, but Noel Cobb was one of those. But he said, I'm getting out of here. And he gets on a steamer to Norway. Hmm. Doesn't know any Norwegian. Had 50 <laughs> bucks in his pocket. And let's see what happens here. Um, <clears throat> he goes on a steamer sailing from New York to Oslo, Norway. He had a degree in philosophy. Well, what more do you need? Hey. $50, a copy of Rilke's The Notebook of Malte Lourdes Brigge. Not familiar with that poem uh, or a series of poems. And a trunk full of existential dread. I mean, come on, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. Pack, right? pack that dread. Okay, so you get on a steamer. Uh, you got 50 bucks in your pocket. You're going somewhere where you don't know the language, and you got a trunk full of existential dread. <laughs> it doesn't get much better than this. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you got to go through customs with that, too. <laughs> yeah, how do you get through <laughs> customs with a trunk full of existential? Oh, Good know. point. Yeah. You're better off with drugs in your trunk. <laughs> 24 years later, he returns to the States for a short visit. He says he never regretted the exile. As an expatriate in Europe, he devoted the next 12 years to learning the customs and culture of the old world while working as a stevedore on the waterfront in Oslo. Hey, Google, what's a stevedore? Here's the definition of a person employed or a contractor engaged at a dock to load and unload cargo from ships. Thank you. Doesn't it sound like something sexier than that? It does. A stevedore, shouldn't you be like <clears throat> wearing a cape <clears throat> and, um, and, and, uh, and fighting a bull, perhaps? Fighting a bull or something? A stevedore? Yeah. No, it's someone working at the docks. All right. Hey, it was good work uh, for him. Hey. Next, let's see what else he. Okay, he teaches himself Norwegian using a pocket dictionary. <clears throat> Two years later, he writes. He publishes a collection of poems in Norwegian. Wow. And from this time on was an active member of an avant-garde group of young imagist poets in Oslo. In 1966, having published four volumes of poetry and completed a six-year degree of psychology, it doesn't mention if, he still, if his trunk was still filled with <laughs> existential dread, but my guess is it was. <clears throat> he travels to London. Now, here's a name some of you 60s folks will remember. He starts living in an experimental community 
Kingsley Hall, the first experimental community in the world in which individuals diagnosed as schizophrenic lived together with professionals and were allowed their madness with no enforced form of pharmaceutical treatment. Hmm. This was under the direction, here's the name, Dr. R.D. Lang, L-A-I-N-G. When I read in college on my own, it was not part of a course, R.D. Lang's The Divided Self. Mm Mm-hmm. It freaked me out as much as when I first heard Leonard Cohen. Yeah, you know, I, I I heard them and read them at the same time. You t- uh, in right. my in my when I was young, and one of the books that I believe I still have is that first R. D. Lang book that I purchased probably in 1971, and I still have that R. D. Lang book. Well, the divided self for it was a nice thin volume. Yes. And basically, what young he was a psychiatrist, and he was saying, "Look, stop with the drugs," because what was. And again, I'm not against pharmaceuticals overall, <laughs> but the point, this goes into the Odyssean going into the Hades. Lang's point was, first of all, I'm not convinced schizophrenics are crazy mm. because maybe they understand more than we do. Maybe, maybe they understand that the, it, the world is so crazy, the way it's being run, that I'm schizophrenia is a way of sex, sex self-exiling oneself from mm. the wor- from from that world mm-hmm. and and so the cure was not to give you a drug to stop the schizophrenia and it wasn't to ignore it either but it was to kind of see schizophrenia not as an illness but as a an insight into the culture it needed to be brought out. And I should reread The Divided Self. But, mm. uh, and we'll get to Leonard Cohen a little bit later on. <laughs> um, but anyway, Noel Cobb, now he's, he's, he's emerging out of the darkness um, somewhat um, and joins this experimental community. Did he have schizophrenia? I'm guessing he did. Mm. I mean, it doesn't say. Mm. But if he was, it sa- here's what it says. Having published four volumes of poetry and completed a six-year degree. Oh, he completes a six-year degree in psychology from the University of Oslo. Travels to London, where on the invitation of Dr. R.D. Lang, he joined the now historic project of Kingsley Hall, the first experiment. He may have been not schizophrenic. He may have been helping Mm. work with the schizophrenics. The first experimental community in the world in which individuals diagnosed as schizophrenic lived together with professionals. He was one of the professionals. Right. He's a psychotherapist. Who were allowed their madness with no enforced form of pharmaceutical treatment. Cobb wrote a novel called The Building about that time. Finding this extreme immersion in the pathologizing of the Western psyche one-sided. Cobb left England in 1971 for an exploration of non-Western cultures. After heading an expedition, by the way, if I take a steamer to Oslo mm-hmm. with, with a trunk full of existential dread <laughs> and I get my degree in psychology, I'm looking for a soft job somewhere teaching at a college. Now, now I'm going to go learn about other kinds of cultures? What's this guy? Yeah. An explorer? Uh, <laughs> after heading an expedition into the wilds of the Algerian Sahara, this guy likes extremes. Yeah. And driving overland to India. I didn't know you could do that. 
that you could drive overland from Algeria to India? Um, and probably, I'm just guessing, probably not a lot of stucky rest stops on the way. Probably not. Now he's in <laughs> India. He studies forms of meditation with Tibetan yogis and meditation masters in the mountains of North India. In 1976, Noel Cobb returns to the West and to his practice of psychotherapy. Now, that's a guy I would do psychotherapy with. Mm. He founded a charitable trust called the London, and there's a great word, the London Convivium for Archetypal Studies. It turns out convivium is a word from the Renaissance for a, it's a beautiful word, convivial, convivium, uh-huh. a group of like-minded people who want to explore something in a deep way. Which is, in a way, what we're doing with the RightBrainNetwork.org website, right? Yeah. I mean, eventually we want to build a community of people who want to dive into what the hell's going on here. Um, The premise of our website is that we are at the precipice of an evolutionary leap. And that's really scary and really cool at the same time. And things are going to get darker. Um, This pandemic is just kind of an appetizer. And yet, the Italian Renaissance came out of one of the darkest periods in human history. Yeah. They, they're not separated. Um, so at any rate, this guy's an interesting dude. And he wrote a book called Archetypal Imagination, Glimpses of the Gods in Life and Art. And I'm just going to read huh. an excerpt because he dies an essay. And a lot of people are going to go, oh, my God, why don't we mention this? Because we've all seen... Uh, a form of this painting that was drawn was was painted by the artist he writes an essay on, which is perfect because if you're if you're an expatriate in Norway and you have a trunk filled with existential dread <laughs> that you are going to not try to get rid of but are going to actually work through, uh-huh. you're going to bump into this guy. Great one of the most famous Norwegian painters of all time, Edvard Munch, Mm -hmm. whose most famous painting still gives me shivers, The Scream. Yeah. And maybe the most appropriate painting at, uh, you know, for the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, we'll get into some excerpts of Noel Cobb, who himself descended into Hades, came out as a psychotherapist to help others and his take on Edvard Munch's scream when we come back. I climb the walls of my mind just like climbing on a jungle gym I am more than content with the state of mind I'm in Cause I am crazy, crazy, crazy Just like you I am crazy, crazy Wow, crazy, nice, Ron finding like the right you. piece of music to play And that bass is great, who is this? That's the Bare Naked Ladies The Bare Naked nice. Ladies? I'm not a man of depressive, paranoid, schizophrenic So I don't need your advice Cause I'm just crazy Wow <laughs> Like you. Is this called I'm Crazy Just Like You? It's just called crazy. crazy. Just called Crazy. <laughs> now that would be interesting like next to uh, the great Patsy Cline Crazy. Crazy. Written by? Uh, 
Willie Nelson. Oh, Willie Nelson. Yeah, no. in the 1950s. Lights so I'll tell you what we'll do, since we can. It's our show. <laughs> when I'm done with my commercials here, bring up Crazy by Patsy Cline. Okay. And keep the, and keep the bare naked ladies, and we'll go back and forth between the two. See what we can do. Because Patsy Cline's voice comes from a, she had a very dark life. Oh, yeah. And yet, that voice, I've never, you know, yeah, there's Aretha Franklin. I mean, there's, big, there's great voices, but for, uh, the voice of Patsy Cline, to me, is as rich and deep as any voice we've ever heard. And I was freaked out when I, when I found out that her song Crazy, which I think came out in the late 50s, was, was the first hit song written by Willie Nelson. Oh. What a career he's had. <laughs> yeah. uh, this still is the Woodstock Roundtable. Do I have that right? You do. I'm Doug Grunther. You're Ron Van Warmer. I am. And uh, we get to have fun on the radio every Sunday morning. Uh, talking about the darkness and how it's the only way to get to the light. Um, and appreciate the light because they're totally connected to each other. And uh, we're talking about Noel Cobb, a very interesting psychotherapist who... Uh, left the United States, frustrated with American culture in 1959 with this trunk of existential dread. I love that <laughs> phrase. Uh, to Oslo, learned the language, became a poet. Six-year program in psychology, became a really fine psychotherapist. In archetypal psychology, which... The point is that rather than interpret a dream, sink into it. Feel it, live it by replaying it and allowing it to transform us. And anyone who's done this work in depth psychology knows what we're talking about here. It works. Um, the book is Archetypal Imagination, Glimpses of the Gods in Life and Art with an introduction by Thomas Moore. Um, and uh, there's also a forward uh, in it, uh, which I'm trying to find here. Um, do, 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 do. Uh, it's not telling me what I need to know here. <laughs> At any rate, he, 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 it, it, you know, be, being in Norway, he went to the Edvard Munch Museum and freaked out. Mm. Uh, because Munch, captured the nightmare as well as any artist as most famous being the scream yeah and you're wondering to paint that painting might you have to have some uh, mental uh, issues i would say <laughs> the, that every fine artist has what the culture would call mental issues mm. but you see the artist understands that it's really the culture that has the mental issues yeah. That's why they become artists. Yeah. And artists I'm using with the capital A. Not just painters and poets right. and writers, but somebody willing to travel into the right hemisphere of the human brain, which is, to be, which is the more imaginative, expanded vision part of our brain, uh, which does not rely on certainty. Because if... if <clears throat> Back into left and right hemisphere of the brain. The left hemisphere is a marvelous tool. It's brought us a lot of 
science and convenience and comforts of modern life, breakthroughs in modern medicine. Its limitation is that it requires certainty it, 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 at the end game. It, 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 it looks at the world as something to be taken apart. Mm-hmm. And by understanding the parts, you understand it. That only works up to a point because scientists now know through emergence theory, chaos theory, self-organization theory, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That in nature, when we see a flock of birds flying, how did they develop that pattern? Mm. They're not, you know, uh, the, the, that, the, um, that when parts interrelate in certain dynamic ways, the end result cannot be determined by the individual parts. And the left hemisphere can't deal with that. Um, the right hemisphere can. And so the artist is much more, not the artist is not devoid of the left hemisphere, but they travel much more into the right hemisphere to create breakthrough visions, unique visions that can't be interpreted any one way. Right. And our science now, quantum physics, can't be interpreted in any one way. So science, is, science in many ways is in the same boat as the art. And uh, at any rate, here's Noel Cobb writing about Edvard Munch. Brushed and slapped on mammoth canvases, paint streaked, striped, pasted, daubed, even squeezed directly out of the tubes. Painting scratched, combed, gouged, feverishly worked paintings of dissolving faces, ghoulish, madly staring, sunken-eyed creatures, putrefying corpses. Enjoying your breakfast out there? <laughs> uh, cor- <laughs> you want a little more jam on your toast, ma'am? Uh, emaciated, consumptive, sick, dying, wounded, bloodied bodies painted with, oh, what ferocity and sureness of expression and what unexpected tenderness. Hmm. I recognize them all. How did he know? How did he know the tortured, crying, crippled figures of my dreams? Mm. That's good writing. Yes, it is. During the following seven years of my sojourn to Norway, I went back again and again to stand in those rooms of the Munch Museum filled with soul paintings, S-O-U-L, breathing in their dark and pungent odors, listening to their somber chamber music, their adagios, their incredibly yearning melodies. And each time I came away calmer, stronger in my sense of soul. It is wonderful, isn't it, that a painting can do this? That one solitude can speak to another? Across years and years, time doesn't count. There he was. I could see him in his cheap pied-à-terre in Paris or Berlin, standing almost reverentially in his three-piece suit, as if he were going to church, staring into the transparent mirror of the soul and daubing the canvas with music. How glad I was to find his paintings. Immediately he became a teacher for me, a soul guide, as did the Czech poet Rainier Maria Rilke, whom I had recently discovered. How else could I have made it through six years of clinical psychology at the (laughs) University of Oslo? Rilke and Munch were older soul brothers, telling me about the wolves I would meet in the forest, pointing out secret paths known only to initiates in the Brotherhood of Dark Pain. Through them, I began to trust my own sense of soul, to believe in the value and the nobility of the imagination, to dare to own experiences previously locked out in shame and humiliation. And then a strange thing happened. When I began to own my own soul life, 
I also began to see it wasn't only mine. There was another dimension which didn't belong to me. What freedom to discover that I was also every person, every woman, every man, the same currents of soul flowing through me as through the person walking beside me. We meet in this river, not the petty personal one in which so many schools of psychology get caught, but the bigger one, the greater river. As psychologists, we must learn to turn to artists like Munch to deepen our understanding of the soul. Good luck. Yeah. You go to a psychiatrist today, you get a drug. Yeah. And some of those drugs are wonder drugs and are the right move. But most of the time, they're a shortcut that doesn't work because you're not dealing with the cause. Yeah. We're not dealing with the darkness. We just want to get to the light. I'll repeat that. As psychologists, we must learn to turn to artists like Munch to deepen our understanding of soul. One soul painting by Munch simply eradicates the relevance of volumes of analysis by Freud or anyone else. And I will, uh, let me read a little bit more, and then I'll go back, I'll, I'll go to the, the great story I've told before, a true story of an example of this, of of. Soul work, true soul work, in the un- which is done in the un- at the unconscious level. Hmm. The problem with such personalistic, reductive approaches to art interpreting. Oh, this is what that means. Is that works of imagination can only be understood and appreciated through the imagination. The imagination is not the faculty for forming images of reality. It is the faculty for forming images which go beyond reality, which sing reality. It's a superhuman faculty. Getting beyond the personal comfort. As James Hillman, who created archetypal psychology, and Wolfgang Giegrich have both said, from the perspective of developmental theory, the adult is merely a fully developed child. To be truly adult means growing up and away from childhood. Yet what does psychology do? It conceives of man and women as a product of his or her childhood, of his father and his mother. If I see my origin in childhood and derive my healthy or disturbed personality from this, I remain a child psychologically, even if educationally I may be as adult as they come. This was Hillman's great insight. Mm. If we keep just looking backwards as saying, well, I'm a product of my parents, to some degree we are, but if we don't develop our own individual will and soul, if we are always stuck in that past, we remain children. Yeah. We don't grow out of that. It's fascinating stuff. Um, Good writer. Oh. Noel Cobb, C-O-B-B. Okay. Um, and what we're going to do um, uh, in the last half hour of our show, and we open up the Woodstock Roundtable Jukebox, we're going to experience uh, the light that comes after diving into the darkness. Who better than Leonard Cohn? Yeah. But we're also going to hear a version of a Leonard Cohn song by someone you might not expect to do one. Mm. I'll give you... A hint, Pink Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, also in our second hour, uh, the Salt of Sonic Soul is here live, yeah. so we'll get some live jazz. 
Uh, we're going to be talking <clears throat> uh, to a gentleman who is an expert in window treatments. Why? Because he's going to educate us about some of the new green options we have for windows. Windows are interesting in depth psychology. Uh, my great teacher, Jeremy Taylor, who was a guest on the show so many times, uh, said that when, it, when a window shows up in a dream, well, first of all, can you see clearly out of the window? Are the curtains drawn or are they shut? Big difference. Yeah. But an open window is a metaphor for the soul. Um, for seeing out from the inside to the outside. Um, and uh, uh, we talked to Louis Benson because on a practical level, um, there are now ways. Uh, by the way, you learn, uh, I learned this primarily as a real estate broker. In many ways, the windows are the most important part of a house because that's where we lose or gain most of the energy. Mm -hmm. And that's where we either let the light in or shut it out. It's a huge part of green. The green movement in architecture is about windows and light. And so we're going to talk about some of the new features that are environmentally green and aesthetically cool. cool. Uh, we're also, when we, again, we'll dive into the darkness in our jukebox and come out in the light, hopefully. <laughs> we don't want to get stuck down there. No. But we have to travel down there. <clears throat> um, quick story. Yeah. Uh, true story from, from the great Milton Erickson. Dr. Milton Erickson was a medical doctor who never practiced medicine. He was the world's leading expert of hypnotherapy. And he was not into self-publicity. He was happy with the practice that he had. Um, he lived most of his life in a wheelchair, having suffered from polio as a kid. Hmm. <clears throat> and rather than be depressed about it, he used it as an opportunity. And he talked about how as a teenager when he, you know, or young teenagers, they'd go to the mall, his parents would leave him in his wheelchair while they went shopping, you know, and he would watch and observe people. Mm. And he taught himself what we now know is a scientific fact, which is that most of communication is nonverbal. Body language. What's not said mm. is often more revealing than what is. And he became one of the world's authorities on that. But he didn't write a lot of books. Uh, he didn't publicize himself. But people would find him. And what he did that was so unique is he would put someone in a trance, which means now you're more tuned into your unconscious, and he would talk to the person's unconscious, hmm. not to their conscious, to get them to make shifts. And here's one of the stories that was verified by a psychotherapist who wrote it up. Guy comes to find him and says, Dr. Erickson, I'm I'm at my I'm I'm at my wit's end. Um, I'm an alcoholic. I've tried every 12 step program. They put me in hospitals. I've seen every top doctor. Uh, I can't keep a job. My wife's going to leave me. Um, I don't know what to do. And somehow. I got your name. <clears throat> Erickson puts him in a trance and has a conversation with the man's unconscious. And then he comes out of the trance and he says to the guy, here's what I want you to do. Uh, he practiced in uh, 
Phoenix, Arizona. So there's a uh, there's a there there's a, uh, a museum not far from here, and they have an exhibit of cacti. Um, I want you to go there every day for a week and spend a minimum of two hours sitting in that cactus garden. Guy leaves. Doesn't hear from him. A year later, there's a knock on his door. <laughs> He's in his wheelchair. He opens the door. Woman, are you Dr. Erickson? Yes, I am. She hugs him. She says, <clears throat> I don't know if you remember, but about a year ago, my husband came to you. Um, we didn't know what to do anymore about his alcoholism. And he did a session with you, and he came back, and he said, I just met a crazy guy. Um, you know what he tells me to do? He tells me to go to some museum and sit with the cactus. Well, nothing else had worked, so he did it. Uh-huh. And a few that his intuition told him that if her husband would sit among the cacti and by the way Erickson gave him gave the un, his unconscious a, you know a prompt that he would learn from the unconscious level that if cacti can exist for months without water he can exist without alcohol mm. it worked yeah um, and we think we know how things work? <laughs> Not if we don't at least explore the darkness, the unconscious, the, the dark energy, the, the unknown. That's where most of the information is. Uh, at any rate, uh, artists know that. Mm. Gus knows that. Although he's never been to a dark place. Somehow he oh. still creates good music. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back with more of the Woodstock Roundtable. Hour two. Okay, stop, 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 stop it right there. Stop it right there. I forgot I told you to play that. Stop, stop it, stop it, stop it. I wish we had a cardiologist in here now. I could see what's <laughs> going on with my heart. Just hearing that piano. First of all, there's something about Nashville piano playing. Yeah. I don't know what the hell they do, <laughs> but in simple notes, they capture something right. that no one else does. Yep. Gus is going to explain this to us. In the oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is Patsy Cline as re- uh, deep a voice that came out of the dark. And she had a very dark life. Yeah. Um, and a song that freaked me out when I heard because this is from. <clears throat> hey, Google. <laughs> when did Patsy Cline release Crazy? 1961. Crazy was November 27th, 1961. Thank you. So 1961, Willie Nelson's first hit as a songwriter. Mm. All right, we'll hear a little bit of this, and then we'll play the whole thing at the jukebox. (laughs) If if my heart survives. (laughs) Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely I'm crazy 
How's this for an idea? Uh, we get a group of people together. We play this and look at Edvard Munch's The Scream. <laughs> yeah. Huh? You'll sign up for that, right? Absolutely. I'm there already. <laughs> I just came from there. <laughs> it's called West Shokan. We'll, we'll take a break. <laughs> Why do I 